Someone has quipped that the greatest mission field in America is the church. The greatest opportunity for the gospel is the pew. They said that because of our text this morning. Will you join me in Matthew 7 and verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Father, the words of Christ are before us, holy and inspired and authoritative. I pray you'd give grace to the speaker to speak the truth clearly, humbly, lovingly. I pray you'd give grace to the listeners to have ears to hear and a heart to understand. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We move this morning from false prophets to false Christians. For every false prophet is first a false Christian. We move from those who lead many to the broad gate that leads to the broad road that leads to destruction to those who blindly follow them. The big idea this morning of the text and the sermon is simply this. We have before us a profile of a false Christian. Yes, Jesus did profiling and he does so here. This is the false disciple of his day that would become the false Christian of the church age. But we need to define our terms. What is a false Christian? Well, obviously, it's a false Christian. It's not a true Christian. It's not a real Christian. But beyond that, a false Christian is a person who thinks they are a Christian, but they're not. For whatever reason, and there's a host of them, they have come to believe wrongly that they have been born again. They have come to believe wrongly that they are a child of God with an inheritance of heaven. That is a false Christian. It is a terrifying place to be simply because you think you are a Christian. Every text answers a question. Part of the process of study and sermon preparation is to Find out what is the question that a particular text is answering. Not just what is this text saying, but what is this text doing? The question answered by this text is not a why question. It's not a what question. It's a how. How do you know if you are a false Christian? That's what this text answers. How do I know if I am in fact in the category of someone deceived, thinking I'm on the road to heaven, 
And like that tragic figure in Pilgrim's Progress, thinking they're about to enter the gates of heaven and then, lo and behold, right at the end, diverted to the gates of hell. How do we know? We know from this text. In Matthew seven twenty-one to 23, we find four characteristics of a false Christian. This is a profile and it has four characteristics. Number one. A false Christian calls Jesus Lord, but does not submit to him. You call Jesus Lord, but you don't submit to him. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. You see, false Christians have a false confession. They have a confession. They have a profession. They profess to be Christians. They profess Christ as Savior, but it's false. And this is really ironic, isn't it? Because confessing Jesus as Lord is required to be a Christian. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this is really ironic. Because a person can actually say the words and it not be true. You can actually make that confession or that profession verbally and audibly, but they are only empty words. Vain words. We could say it this way. Everyone submitted to Jesus will confess him as Lord, but not everyone who says Lord, Lord is submitted to Jesus. I want you to note the contrast in verse 21. The contrast between says and does. This is the contrast Jesus wants us to see. This helps us to to profile the false Christian in contrast with the true Christian. Not everyone who says, present tense, Lord, Lord. But he who does, you see. Words are cheap, Jesus is saying. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in your actions, not your words. Words are important. We must confess Jesus as Lord. We do it best in the waters of baptism as a believer. But those words must be backed up by action, by a lifestyle, by behavior that demonstrates that those words are true. And we all know this to be true in our heart of hearts. We live this way. We know this. For example, imagine the husband going on a business trip. And he says to his wife as he's leaving, as she's dropping him off at the airport, I love you. And then five minutes later, he's flirting with someone in the airport. And throughout the entire trip, that characterizes his behavior. He's seeking it out constantly. And then maybe it even comes about. And then after that trip, he comes home with gifts for his wife. And he says upon greeting her, I love you. Empty words, right? An empty profession. We understand that. That's what the false Christian's life looks like. I love you to the Lord only to go flirting with the world constantly. Seeking sin constantly. And then coming back to Jesus with more I love you's. That ring hollow and ring empty. Now, he talks about here uh, people calling him Lord, but obviously not submitting to him as Lord. So what does this submission look like? 
Well, he tells us it looks like this doing the will of my father. Verse 21. This submission to him in reality is one who does the will of my father. Well, what is that? What is Jesus referring to when he says the will of my father here? He's referring to in context, what? The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had come as the king, the spokesman for God to reveal the will of the father. He's been doing it this entire sermon. And so the initial answer to this, what is the will of my father? It's a sermon on the mount, starting with the beatitude attitude, starting with the description of the heart of a believer, poor in spirit. Right. Those things we saw in Matthew five. That's that's what Jesus has in mind here. We can't divorce this verse from the the setting in which it comes. And then even the broader context of the gospel of Matthew. This is the story of the king who came to offer himself to his people who would be rejected and renounced as their king and Messiah who would allow himself to be crucified for their sins, to be buried and to be raised from the dead and then to commission his apostles with this great glorious gospel. This this book started with gospel, didn't it? When we saw Rahab in that genealogy this book started with gospel when they when they said to Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So in the context of Sermon on the Mount, in the context of the gospel of Matthew. Now we understand what it means to do the will of my father. It is to submit to the king, the savior, Jesus. It is to hear his word and obey it. The word here given in the Sermon on the Mount I told you when we introduced the Sermon on the Mount that it was filled with commands, right? Prohibitions and positive commands, 30 or 40 of them. I mean, this revolutionizes preaching. Jesus is constantly telling people what to do and what not to do, like enter through the narrow gate and beware of false prophets and and do not cast your pearls before swine and on and on it goes. So what does this submission look like? It looks like this, doing the will of his father. What is that? It's the Sermon on the Mount. But now we have to be careful that we don't push so far that we become those of works righteousness, right? I've said this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is sanctification righteousness. This is the description of a true disciple. This is not how to be saved. This is the result of being saved. We should say it this way. The Sermon on the Mount is not justification by obedience, but rather justification by faith leads to obedience. Right. We're not justified by obedience. We're justified by faith, which leads to obedience. And that obedience is what proves our faith. That obedience is what proves our confession. As James says, Faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead faith. Useless faith. Worthless faith. A non-saving faith. So we're not talking about perfect obedience, of course. We still sin. The Bible teaches that. Christians still stumble into sin. So it's not perfect obedience, but it's a pattern of obedience. It's not never sinning again. It's not living in sin that is at stake here. That is what is implied and meant by he who does the will of my father. So what at this point should the false 
Christian do? Well, he should submit to Christ. He should actually bend the knee and surrender his life. He should, he should uh, from the heart, bow down and receive him as Lord. His, his very heart needs to line up with this confession of Lord, Lord. If he's Lord, then, then, then bow to him, then surrender to him, then yield to him, then submit to him. You see, the, there's an aspect to the nature of faith that is a submission to the one in whom we trust. There is a a humbling before the one we rely upon. Second characteristic is in verse 22. You trust in your deeds, not Jesus. The second characteristic of a false Christian is they trust in things that they have done instead of Jesus himself. Look at verse 22. Many, echoing back to the broad path, right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? This is astounding. This is an astounding resume. The problem is they're relying on their resume and not on the Redeemer. You see, the false Christian has a false hope. The false Christian first has a false profession. The false Christian secondly has a false hope. They trust in their deeds, not in Jesus alone. And the point is made here so powerfully because of a couple of things. First of all, in your name, three times, and in the emphatic position in the word order of the Greek. In your name means as your representative. It means in your power. They had done these things, these three things, in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Not some false god. Not some false Messiah. And look at these three deeds. Prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles, which is likely healings. They're all good. They're all good deeds. In fact, Jesus did them himself. And the apostles would do them as his delegates. Right? So you've got, in the name of Jesus, you've got good deeds. You've got deeds that are exemplified and performed by Christ himself. So what is the problem? Right? What is the problem? Well, they're actually relying on this instead of on Christ. They're relying on this instead of demonstrating their faith by a life of obedience. You see, they're doing these things while living a life of sin. They're performing these supernatural and superlative and outstanding deeds while their lifestyle is one of lawlessness. Which tells us this, even spectacular supernatural deeds done in the name of Jesus is not enough. It is not sufficient for salvation. Because deeds cannot be the basis of our salvation. Deeds can never be the object of our faith. It's an insufficient object of saving faith. You cannot trust in your deeds. You must trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to be justified before a holy God. We are justified by faith. And then that faith produces works. These certainly have a charismatic slant to them. These deeds of verse 22, they were deeds done in the first century through the power of Christ and the apostles. They were deeds done through the gifting of 
uh, first century apostles for the establishment of the church. But what might verse 21 look like today? Here's some examples of what verse 21 might sound like in today's world. Lord, Lord, I'm a baptized deacon who tithed, voted Republican, and supported Billy Graham. Lord, Lord, don't you remember I did that beach evangelism in college? Wow, that was kind of tough, Lord. Where's some credit? And then I taught Sunday school to those kids, those unruly kids. And then, and then on Sunday afternoons, I'd visit the nursing homes, Lord. Don't you remember? Lord, Lord, I read my Bible. I sang in the choir. I served in the nursery. Lord, Lord, I'm a good person. I kept the Ten Commandments. You can't send me to hell. That's what it's going to sound like. It's going to be something of your own doing that you trust in to be delivered from God's wrath. And none of these can provide a foundation. It's a, it's a bridge of spider webs. You can't walk across that chasm on that bridge, folks. The only bridge that gets you across the chasm is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you start walking across that great chasm on the strength of your deeds, you will collapse into an eternity of punishment. And so what is the solution here for the false Christian trusting in what you have done? The solution is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Cast yourself completely and without reserve on him and him alone, on his person and on his work, and say to him, if you don't save me, I will not be saved. If you don't rescue me, I will not be rescued. If you are not the Savior, the only Savior, I will go to hell. You are my only hope. You are my God, my King, my Savior, my Redeemer, my everything. And I give you my everything. The best that I understand, wherever I am in my life, I yield to you the control of my life. I give you the reins of my life. Come in and take over. That is a prayer of salvation and trust in Christ. Third characteristic of the false Christian. You know of Jesus, but you're not known by Jesus. Verse 23 And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I have it's literally, I have never come to know you. They made their confession and now he makes a judicial declaration. He makes his own confession, his own profession. Then I will not just say, I will declare, I will pronounce to them. I've never come to know you. This is an irreversible judicial pronouncement. And know here is very important. This is an echo of foreknowledge. This know here is an echo of intimate love. We could substitute love. We could substitute foreknowledge. We could substitute choosing. We could substitute any of these kinds of concepts theologically. I have never come to know you, Jesus says. In other words, you don't belong to me. 
There, there, there's not an intimacy here. There's not a relationship here. There's not a, a sense of, of you are mine because I have chosen you. See, the first thing he's going to declare to them has him in the sovereign seat, does it not? It has him as the one who takes the initiative, does it not? He starts with, I have never come to know you. And so the third characteristic of the false Christian is you know about Jesus, but you're not known by Jesus. This is a great time to take this reminder as we study the Sermon on the Mount and all of the commands and all of the duties and all of the do this and don't do that. And they're all real and they're all important. Here's a good reminder. Salvation ultimately rests not on us knowing him, but on him knowing us. It rests not on us loving him, but on him loving us. It rests not on us choosing him, but on his choosing us. Ultimately, that is the the bedrock of our salvation. Or we could say it simply, Jesus' love is received, not achieved. His love is only received, not achieved. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't deserve it. You can't try. I've heard this before as a pastor, hearing testimonies. People will say, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to be a Christian. And I just have immediately all these red flags go off in my mind. You cannot try to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is quitting. Becoming a becoming. I didn't say being. I said becoming a, a Christian is quitting. It's resting. It's stop trying. It's give up. It's surrender. It's I can't do it. I can't save myself. I can't cleanse myself. I can't redeem myself. My problem is I've been trying to. Jesus' love is received, not achieved. It's counterintuitive. It's unlike any love we've ever experienced. It's unconditional and unearned. The third characteristic of a false Christian is you know of Jesus, but you aren't known by Jesus. So what is the solution? I'm not really sure how to say this. The best way I can say it is cry out to be known. Um, Rest. Rest in the Lord. Cease striving and know that He is God. Cry out to be loved. Cry out to be His. Cry out to belong. Cry out for relationship. Start there. And address the fundamental, ultimate need of your heart is to be loved and known by Jesus Christ. That is the starting point. You can't go anywhere without that. Now, as a result of no relationship with Christ, the fourth and final characteristic is both inevitable and predictable. Number four, you practice lawlessness, not righteousness. You practice lawlessness, not righteousness. Look at 23. Then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I failed to uh, explain back in verse 22 what day Jesus is referring to. He says back in verse 22, many will say to me on that day. What day is that? That is the day of judgment 
when he separates the sheep from the goats before the millennial kingdom. This is that day after the tribulation when Jesus has returned to earth and he is doing the final judgment to determine who goes into the kingdom and who is banished from the kingdom. That is the day he refers to there in verse 22, clearly calling himself the ultimate judge because he says many will say to who? Me. To me on that day. And so now verse 23 is that judicial declaration based on the fact that those who are divided out as the goats are those who practiced lawlessness. He will declare to them that they are workers of lawlessness, not workers of righteousness. That these two categories describe all humanity. And you're either in one or the other. And it's a pattern of your life. Do people that practice lawlessness occasionally do something good? Yes, of course. Common grace. Do people who practice righteousness occasionally stumble in sin? Yes, we will because of this flesh. He's talking about the pattern and characteristic and behavior of your life. And we're one or the other. You either practice righteousness or you practice lawlessness. There's no third option. There's no third path. There's no third gate. If we think there is, we're deceived. Uh, you know, it's like I said before, there's, there's, there's really no fence. The fence is on the devil's side. If you're sitting on the fence, you're on the devil's side. You got to get off the fence and onto God's side, you see. And so the false Christian practice, this is their lifestyle. They live in sin. They practice sin. They, li- they, they live for sin. To practice lawlessness then is the opposite of doing my Father's will. You've got people who, present tense, does the will of my Father. You've got people who, present tense, practice lawlessness. This is the opposite of that surpassing righteousness that he said at the beginning of the sermon is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go back and look at it one last time. Chapter 5, verse 20. Probably the most important verse to the entire Sermon on the Mount. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So to practice lawlessness is essentially the opposite of that surpassing righteousness. And it's a righteousness that proves a beatitude attitude. So the false Christian practices breaking God's law, his moral law. They do this as a lifestyle. They haven't repented from sin, so they live in sin. And they live for sin, and they're controlled by sin. This is summed up very well for us by Grant Osborne in his commentary on these verses. Listen carefully. He says, these people, like Judas, pretended to be disciples and probably even acted like disciples. Indeed, possibly thought they were disciples but never actually committed to him. They were committed to the power Jesus represented. And they were committed to the status they thought they had. But they never allowed the will of God to control their actions, end quote. That's perfect. That's it. That's the profile of a false disciple. David Turner, in his commentary, though he takes this passage to to be describing false prophets, it's true of them, it's also true of false Christians. He says, quote, they take a lax view of the law and the need for obedience to it. 
four characteristics then to profile the false Christian. And if you have one, you'll have all of them. You say that Jesus is Lord, but lack submission to him as Lord. You trust in your deeds, not Jesus. You know about Jesus, but you're not known by Jesus. And you practice lawlessness, not righteousness. Are there some biblical examples of this? One of them may have been in his hearing that day, just like there could be some false Christians in my hearing right now. His name was Judas. And he did everything that's described in verse 22. This fits Judas to a T, does it not? There's other people in the New Testament that are described by this profile. I think of Simon in Acts chapter 8, who made a profession of faith, wanted to be baptized, and said to the apostles, can I give you money so that I can have this power? Infatuated with the power and the status. And there are many, many other examples throughout the New Testament as well. So what happens to the false Christian? What can they expect at the end of their life? What can they count on happening? We go back to verse 23 for the answer. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. This is a present active imperative. He says to them, go away, leave, keep leaving and keep going. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What can they expect? They can expect unless they repent to be banished from the kingdom of heaven. In fact... Go over to Matthew 25 for a moment and verse 41. And here is really the proof that we said Jesus here is talking about the separation of the sheep from the goats. In Matthew 25, 41, we find some of the same words as this judgment is going to take place. Matthew 25, 41. Then... He will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell wasn't made primarily or initially for sinners. It was made for the devil and his fallen angels. And then Jesus goes on to describe why they are in that category. And it was because their life did not demonstrate a true righteousness. These are some of the most chilling and sobering and terrifying words in the Bible. Because of what precedes them, because of the confession of Lord, Lord, because of the things done in the name of Jesus. And then to come to verse 23 and have this shock laid upon you, this declaration of get away from me, I never knew you, get away from me, you worker of iniquity, you practicer of lawlessness, this will be the shock of their lives. The people in this category will be dumbfounded. They will be renounced, repudiated, and rejected by the king of kings, all when they were expecting a warm embrace. They will be turned away and turned out. Their presumptions and their assumptions 
will fall like sandcastles in a flash flood. Their house will collapse utterly and completely. They will have nothing left to stand on because they were never standing on Christ to begin with. And this is the mercy of God that he would tell us this in advance, is it not? This is the mercy of God that we would have a glimpse of the future before we arrive there. We know this judgment is coming. We know he will divide the sheep from the goats. And we know now the basis of this judgment and the one who will be executing and exercising it. We can't get into heaven on presumptions. We can't get into heaven on assumptions. We get into heaven by faith alone in Christ alone. By the grace of God alone. And this grace that saves is a grace that transforms. It's a grace that renews. It's a grace that sanctifies. It's a grace that makes you more and more and more like Christ. So that when you stand before him on that day, you will not be looking at a stranger. You will not be looking at someone you have not had a relationship with. You will not be looking at someone that doesn't know you and you don't know him. You'll be looking into the eyes of the one you have been developing and, and, and nurturing a precious communion with for as long as he gives you in this life. So what if you fit the profile this morning? What if tragically you came in thinking you were a Christian, but now you're not so sure? In fact, now by the power of the Spirit and the Word, you're convinced that you're not. What should you do? Keep reading is what you should do. Verse 24. Now the conclusion of the whole Sermon on the Mount and the conclusion of this text. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. His house is his destiny. His house is his life. His house is his eternity. His house is everything. And if you want to be a wise man, you're hearing the words of Christ, act on them and build your house on the rock. Verse 25, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. This verse 25 is not describing trials. It's not describing difficulties of life. It's not describing a literal storm that comes against you. This is describing eschatological judgment. This is describing the judgment of God as a flood. That judgment at the, at the entrance to the millennial kingdom of Christ. The judgment comes and that house does not fall because it has been founded on the rock. It passes the judgment. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. He will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. If you're building on something other than the rock, on hearing and acting on the words of Christ, then you're building on sand. You're, you're like a sand castle and the tide is coming in and it's going to wash it away. But if you build on Christ and his word, you will withstand that judgment because that judgment has already been passed. There's your answer. Is he the word of Christ? 
It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's repent of your sins and submit to the king. There's your answer. Be a wise man, not a fool. Act on the word of God. Don't just hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it. You must act on it. Faith moves out in trust and obedience. And now finally, the P.S. How did the people of his day respond? How did they react? Look at verse 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The word amazed is way too soft. The word here is overwhelmed. They were in shock and awe. They were undone and overwhelmed by his transcendent authority. They had never heard anything like it. They had never seen anyone like this. His tone was authoritative. His content was authoritative. His contrasts were authoritative. His examples and illustrations were spellbounding. Listen, this was not some dull scribe citing case law of dead rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so, 200 years ago, said so-and-so. Oh, let me find that reference for you. (laughs) This was not some mere prophet in the line of a bunch of dead prophets. This was not even a lawgiver on the same plane as Moses. This is the sovereign Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the authoritative King. This is the one bringing God's Word to God's people. This is the one taking the law and applying it to their hearts in a way that it had never been done before in their life. This person is the very agent of judgment. Many will say to me on that day, this person's words will be the basis of that judgment. This person is God in human flesh, Lord of lords and King of kings. When he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed, awed, overwhelmed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having supreme authority and not as their scribes. Will you stand with me in the presence of the one with supreme authority? And I want to pose a a couple of questions to you. If you too are in awe of his authority, if you are amazed and overwhelmed by his word, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then sing, Behold Our God.